Welcome to episode eight of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I'm your host, Miles Taylor. I'm very excited to be hosting this on Call-In, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. And I'm thrilled to have a special guest with us today, Eric Swalwell. He is a congressman from California's 15th district. You have seen him leading the charge on everything from the impeachment of former President Donald Trump to foreign policy issues of the day. I will uh, avoid the long introduction. He's a man that needs no introduction and dive right into the issues. Congressman, thrilled to have you join us today. And I want to kick off by talking uh, about Ukraine, as we have on many episodes, you recently got back from a trip uh, to Eastern Europe where you were really focused on these issues. Can you tell us about what you saw and, and where your head's at on this ongoing conflict? Yeah, thanks, Alison, and congrats on the podcast. I'm so, gl- so glad you're doing it. You're a needed voice in the space, especially just uh, you know, all the shit that you've seen and um, just trying to find clarity uh, coming out of the last few dark years. So I'm glad you're doing it. Uh, went to Ukraine border last week and, you know, wanted to get to the region as a member of the Intel Committee and find out what more we can do to make sure that Vladimir Putin fails, uh, but also work with our embassy there, who's working day and night to help with the refugee flow. And so I went out to the Hungarian-Ukraine uh, border. And I have to tell you, I've got three kids in diapers. Uh, my wife, uh, you know, has been put in a tough spot a number of times when I have to leave town and she's stuck with the kids. And to see so many women get off a train and no men around and they're rolling one big suitcase and they're trying to keep track of little ones who are scared and crying and want their dad. And the moms are just trying to show strength and resilience. That was probably one of the hardest things I've ever watched uh, in my life and, and just made me more determined to do what little part I can in the Congress uh, to get them back to the country and help the effort to push back Putin. What, what, what you know, Both from your work on the House Intelligence Committee and your you know trip to the region, you know, Congressman, what do the Ukrainians need to win this struggle, not just to survive, but to defeat Russia? And what more do you think should be done? We need to keep them in the fight. And the way they stay in the fight is to lift their morale. So if they're asking for MiGs that they can fly, so these are Soviet-era jets, we should just find a way to get them the damn MiGs, especially if we have MiGs that are not ever going to be used by any NATO allies uh, in combat. Uh, give them to the Ukrainians. And I, I don't really accept this armchair mentality that, well, you know, they're going to be shot down. Russia controls the airspace. If they want to fly them and they want to try and you know do what they can to stay in the fight, I would rather listen to President Zelensky, who's on the ground, than anyone who's thousands of miles away. So uh, keep the morale up. Give them the capacity to shut down the sky. So give them jets that they can fly. Give them ground missile systems that can knock out uh, Russian jets. And then, of course, uh, the lethal aid uh, that can take out uh, the tank uh, brigades that Russia keeps sending in. I think Zelensky said they need a thousand a day, uh, and so collectively with Ukraine, with NATO allies as well as the Japanese, Australians, and other countries who are stepping up, let's keep giving them the, the lethal aid. And then to the day after, 
uh, thinking about what the day after is, you know, just a pledge that we'll be there as far as economic assistance. So as they stand tall right now and their buildings continue to collapse, that we can help stand up, you know, the Ukrainian infrastructure uh, when Russia's gone. And, and again, that goes to the morale that they need. So there's a lot more that we can do. I don't think we're doing that. Congressman, you've been a longtime voice on national security issues, very much out there in the in the public discussion on the subject. Of course, as you note, a member of the House Intelligence Committee. I'm curious to get your long term thoughts on what this means. I mean, I, I titled this episode "Eric Swalwell Doesn't Like Dictators" uh, for a reason, and, and and we'll get into your efforts to combat autocracy, not just abroad but here at home. We'll get there in a minute, but. What does this conflict signal for the future, not just of NATO, but of the democratic West? Has this changed your thinking about, you know, the fight for free and open societies? Is it a harder fight in the 21st century than we expected it to be? Well, Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union the evil empire. And many of us thought that when the wall came down and the Soviet Union collapsed, that the Cold War was over, but I actually think that we are actually seeing the Cold War being fought out uh, right now, and Russia evil than ever. And so this is a battle between good and evil, and, and sometimes conflicts uh, in history are just that simple. Um, and that doesn't mean that we have a perfect record as a country on conflicts, uh, but I think this one uh, we have to go in clear-eyed and, and recognize that. Either an authoritative figure like Putin is able to take over a free people who have their own culture, their own language, their own currency, uh, and take their land uh, and decimate populations, or he's not. And history also shows us that when people do what Putin is seeking to do, they're rarely satisfied and, and they generally want to keep moving forward and expanding because once you've isolated yourself, uh, as Putin has, uh, the only way out, essentially, is through. And, and so that means, to, I believe, would mean, you know, threatening our NATO allies or a country like Finland, a non-NATO uh, ally that sits on Russia's uh, northwestern uh, border. So uh, to me, this, we have to defeat uh, Putin because defeating Putin means defeating uh, authoritarianism. And uh, as you alluded to, uh, we can't be naive to the fact that we have, you know, an authoritarianism problem or streak in our own country. So there's a lot at stake. What about the tension between the United States and China? What do you think this means for the U.S. relationship, the Washington's relationship with Beijing? Uh, and where do you think Beijing will ultimately land on the question of this conflict? Well, it's important that Beijing learns the right lesson from this, which is that the world will respond, most of the world will respond quite harshly and quite swiftly uh, when you, you know, try and take away uh, freedom uh, from people and, and when you do it in, in such a violent um, manner. And so if, if they were to, if they saw this as an invitation to move on Taiwan because maybe we're distracted, uh, we're not distracted. We're, we're quite alert and we're quite uh, in collaboration uh, with Europe, Australia, Japan, and others. And so I hope they're learning the right lesson, which is they don't want to suffer the, the social stigma, the reputational uh, penalty that Russia is suffering, where Russia went from a first world country, a part of the G20, to now uh, they enjoy the same status as Iran and Venezuela. And, and so 
that could very swiftly happen with China. China so far, as far as we know, has not provided any lethal aid, any food, any fuel uh, to Russian troops. And as long as that's the case, that's fine. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm not going into this, uh, you know, Pollyanna-ish believing that China is going to be our ally on this. Um, I just don't want them keeping Russia in the fight. And I think uh, for President Biden, his longstanding relationship with Xi uh, is hopefully uh, paying off in keeping them neutral. And, and there's a lot of different directions that this conflict could turn. But, you know, in just the past 48 hours or so, some folks have worried about there being further escalation because of remarks from President Biden this weekend. Uh, the president was in Eastern Europe and he said publicly that Putin cannot remain in power. Some worried that that was the United States signaling regime change. The Secretary of State has since walked that back and said, no, it's not U.S. policy. But I'm curious to get your opinions on this, Congressman, because um, I, I get that the administration needs to be clear that our objective is not regime change in Russia. We're not trying to oust Putin from the Kremlin. But isn't it reasonable for any American or anyone watching this conflict to say it, it, at some point it's time for Putin to go? I mean, this man is a, a barbaric dictator. Certainly the United States is not going to try to go topple Putin. Um, but is, isn't it reasonable for President Biden to say that uh, Putin, you know, shouldn't be in, in power in Russia? What's your view on that? Yeah, the emotion is absolutely reasonable. It's one that I share and I think millions of Americans share, which is to just want Putin gone because of the atrocities he is committing, the wickedness he's inflicting on women and babies who, I, as I said, I, I saw firsthand that the family who had come uh, on a six-day trek from Mariupol uh, with nothing and, and nowhere to go uh, and nowhere to go back to. And so, yes, it, it's a natural emotion to want him gone. But if that emotion is not the policy, uh, then it's, it's important that we clarify what the policy is. Look, that may one day be the policy, um, but if it's not the policy, we want the world aligned with what the policy is, which I believe is to see Putin fail and for Ukraine to be free. Um, but I, I think Joe Biden expressed, you know, an emotion that so many of us, I mean, if you don't have that emotion, there's something wrong with you. Um, but again, it's not the policy right now. And I, I think he's back and, and focused on carrying out the objective of making sure he fails by helping to see him lose on the battlefield. I want to ask you a, a final question on the Ukraine crisis and what seems to many people to be a, a new Cold War with Russia. You noted in recent days that we should consider uh, banning Russian students from U.S. universities. Uh, you know, so, some folks have come out and, and criticized you for that, but um, th this is not necessarily an unusual proposal. You go back uh, to administrations of both parties in you know a moment of international conflict, often uh, that's one of the items on the menu of putting pressure on a on a foreign regime, and certainly governments like the Russian federal government uh, have exploited visa access in the United States. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your thinking and other ways you think we might be able to hold the Kremlin accountable for this unjust invasion. That's right, and, and, and I want you know students connected to. Putin's oligarchs to be sent home. Um, and again, kind of using an example of sometimes an emotion can overwhelm a policy. Um, I, I did not mean to suggest, you know, every Russian student. I, I think you need to be purposeful 
and if you don't want, I, I believe Alexei Navalny's uh, daughter is a U.S. student. Certainly, she, we would not want her sent back to Russia. But there are a number of oligarchs um, who do have, you know, kids in the United States, and I, I think that should be on, as you described it, the menu of options. Um, look, we we should consider closing their embassy and closing their and working with our allies to close their missions all over the world. Uh, we should consider eject, you know, ejecting them from most, you know, international organizations where they sit. And again, just to completely isolate them and, and be willing as Putin goes up the ladder of atrocities to go up with him and make sure that, you know, they're paying a price. There's also still a number of U.S. companies doing business in Russia, and, and we're going to have to probably confront that soon. Do we think that's okay? Uh, or, or should we, you know, restrict any U.S. company's ability, you know, to do business there? So, we still have options available. And um, again, it's important uh, that I follow uh, my own advice, <laughs> which is, you know, make sure that you're clearly stating the policy. Sometimes emotion will overwhelm the policy, uh, but the policy has to remain clear. Uh, and, and to me, that is uh, making sure that as Putin continues to escalate, uh, we escalate, uh, we meet him, uh, you know, point for point uh, with the price that he has to pay for everything he does. You, you've shown uh, immense moral clarity about this conflict and, and also about the broader fight with Russia. And as I noted at the top end, when it comes to dictators and autocrats in general, Eric Swalwell is no fan of dictators. So let's talk about the autocratic sort of tendencies that are coursing through the veins of the party that I'm from, the Republican Party. You tweeted something uh, just the other day from Donald Trump's remarks at a, a quote, Save America rally that he did. He uh, was introduced by one of your fellow congressmen, Matt Gates, who at the rally basically said that he's going to nominate Donald Trump for Speaker of the House if the Republicans retake the House. Now, I've talked about this before, and I, I think this boggles listeners' minds that you don't have to be an elected member of the House of Representatives to become Speaker. Yes, there is a far out scenario where if the Republicans retake the House, they could nominate someone like Donald Trump to be Speaker and then could potentially put him into the job. Now, again, that sounds like a, a, a bizarre political fantasy. But in the era of Trump, we shouldn't put it past Republicans to do something that outlandish. Um, I, I want to get your take, Congressman, on, you know, whether Trump still has a Darth Vader-like chokehold over the Republican Party? And, and what does that mean for the health of our democracy uh, going forward? They just are so unwilling to confront and condemn him. And, and that's what is so dangerous. And we've had a number of hearings uh, on the Judiciary and Homeland Security Committee where we've had representatives uh, from the Anti-Defamation League, uh, from Homeland Security from DHS, your former uh, shop. Uh, I believe you worked with, was is it Newman or Newberger? Yeah, Elizabeth Newman. Yeah. Newman. Uh, yeah. yeah. She's, she's domestic terrorism expert. And talking with her about uh, some of these right wing domestic violence or right wing extreme organizations, uh, I, I've asked both the ADL and, and Miss Newman. If it matters to these groups, in their expert opinion, whether leaders at the top condemn 
or condone what they're doing. And, and they both said across the board, it absolutely matters if, if they're given a permissive space or if people like Donald Trump say, you know, proud boys, you know, stand back and stand ready. That inspires them and motivates them and emboldens them. And I'm afraid right now um, from Donald Trump to Kevin McCarthy, uh, they see an open highway with green lights, no stop signs, no cop on the beat, that they are absolutely welcome in the Republican Party. And, and that is, is terrifying. And there's just not enough Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's uh, right now. Uh, and if there were, I don't think they would, you know, make it so far uh, down the road. Is, is it reasonable for folks to be worried about some sort of ridiculous legislative maneuvering on behalf, uh, you know, by Matt Gates and others to make Donald Trump Speaker of the House? I mean, how, how far-fetched is that concept? I don't think it's far-fetched. What I'm, to be honest, struggling with is how do you, how do you message that to voters? Because here's the, the reality is that that's a process argument, right? And you just laid it out. Um, you, you're, you're, you have to tell them that this midterm election means if the Republicans win the House, it's Speaker Trump. And the first question is going to be, how could it even be Speaker Trump? Like, how, how is that the case? But you're right. In the Constitution, there's nothing that says the Speaker has to be elected to the House. So that, that I'm struggling with, how do you educate the voters about that and then tell them the consequences of the Republicans being in the majority? We, we should figure that out because... I do believe he's going to be nominated from the floor. Now, it's just a matter of as we get closer to the election or even in the, the chaos, and I've lived this chaos um, a couple times between the election and when you have to elect a leader, whether there's momentum for him to do it. If you step back and think about who Donald Trump is, he has a number of times flirted with the idea of running for president, uh, you know, multiple elections, I think four or five different times before 2016. Uh, he had gone up, you know, to the water's edge, but never took the plunge. And so you have to wonder, is this almost like one in the hand is better than two in the bush for someone who's actually, I think, afraid of losing? And that's why he didn't run in prior times. And I think he may be thinking about 24 and think, well, I could be speaker and, and evaluate my chances for running in 24 and have that opportunity if it's presented to me. And there's if he wanted it, as I laid out earlier, I, I think it's absolutely his, but, but there's not, there's no, um, there's not enough will uh, and courage on the Republican side in the House uh, to stop him. And, and so I, I, I wouldn't bet against that uh, at all. And in fact, Kevin McCarthy might be the one to nominate uh, if, if he wanted it. Uh, I, I want to take a question from a caller here, Congressman. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got D in the caller queue. D, feel free to jump in with your question. Hey, can you hear me? Got you loud and clear. Yeah. So my question is, um, and I'm glad Eric doesn't like think this is just Trumpism because I actually don't think Trump himself is the most kind of dangerous candidate um, to run in 2024. Which concerning to me is is these in, these people who are um, kind of paleo conservatives um, who are able to kind of co-opt some kind of anti-establishment language and lure a lot of people in. So I'm talking about people like Tucker Carlson, um, people like Blake Masters, um, you know, um, people like Christopher Rufo, um, because those are people that are able to kind of Glenn Young can just one. Those are people who are able to kind of 
um, promote authoritarianism, particularly with like CRT stuff um, under the veneer of a nice face. So my question for Eric is, what is the Democratic Party doing to uh, prepare for that? Because I think sometimes the focus is on Trump and Trump is able to and Trump, I actually, I think, would have a harder time because he, there's no respectability versus a Ron DeSantis. There, there could be enough suburban women or men that, you know, like him because they think he's a respectable person like we saw in Virginia. Yeah, that, that, that's a great question, D. And I think one lesson I've learned from this is that there's only one Donald Trump. Um, and, and Miles, I welcome your thoughts. But the, many have tried to imitate Donald Trump. And, and you've got this uh, character, I mean, truly like a, a screen character uh, in Josh Mandel running in Ohio who is, who is trying to imitate, you know, Donald Trump. But few have actually succeeded on, at the ballot box in doing it. Um, but what I do fear is that Tucker Carlson, who you also just mentioned, D, um, I, I think that's where the, the real threat comes, is that Tucker Carlson, I would say, is 99% in this just for the entertainment value. And you've seen that because he's evolved over the past few decades as far as the, what he believes. And he's kind of molded and, and adjusted himself to whatever the times are. And I've been on his show a number of times and, and I, for many years, I was the Democrat who did his show the most. And I would go see him uh, either before the show or, or after the show in his office. And to me, I got the sense that this was just entertainment, um, that he would beat me up on the show for the fans, because I think that's how he saw it. But backstage or in his office, um, he wanted to kind of laugh about, you know, what was going on. And, and he was sort of in on the joke. Now, the problem is if the fans don't, realize that it's just entertainment to Tucker Carlson and they receive the vitriol that's coming from him, they're going to project it onto their local elected officials. They're going to project it at the governor of Michigan and then try and kill or kidnap and kill her. They're going to project it at the January 6th event. And, and I, I think that's lost in this uh, debate is that, um, yes, there's an authoritarian streak among many, um, but there's also an entertainment value uh, and a pandering to uh, people who are authoritarian curious, but doing it in an entertaining way as, as Tucker does. But what's so, to me, despicable is I actually don't even think he believes it. I, I think it's just for entertainment value. I see this with so many of my colleagues who will come up to me, um, who will they'll go at me on Twitter, they'll attack me on Fox News. They have their own authoritative streaks. But then they'll bump into me and be like, hey, Swalwell, how you doing, buddy? One of them keeps inviting me to like go to dinner with them, uh, which is just kind of weird. And, and then it finally occurred to me, oh, this is like pro wrestling. They think in the ring we're supposed to hit each other over the head with chairs, but backstage we know it's fake and the fans just want it. And I think that is actually really, really corrosive um, that they view so much of their role here, like Matt Gates, uh, is, is just to entertain what they think the fans want. Because if the fans aren't in on it, um, boy, uh, it can be quite combustible. Uh, and and I, I think that was a great response. I was sitting here, Eric, literally thinking about the analogy of pro wrestling and that that's exactly yeah. what Tucker's doing, except the difference is, you know, he's wrestling our democracy to the ground. Right? It's one thing if it's right. a bunch that's of right. actors on TV and, you know, people looking beefy and, and backslapping afterwards. But, you know, the backslapping that's happening is between insurrectionists after this. Um, 
And, you know, I, and I think what's worrying to a lot of folks who are watching this play out is because of gateway drugs like Tucker Carlson, those insurrectionists who tried to attack the Capitol from the outside have, have learned the wrong lesson. Now many of them are trying to go actually get elected to public office to attack our democracy from the inside. I mean, you know, what's your perspective on the fact that some of these, you know, insurrection boosters may be your fellow members of Congress in the next session? And, and I think to follow on to these questions, here's where I think, because his question also asked, you know, how do you counter this? And I think the Ukraine crisis is a real live opportunity um, to divide and conquer, so to speak, because women and children uh, are dying. Women and children are getting on trains with nothing and going uh, to a new land. Uh, And it's vivid. We see it uh, on television 24 hours a day. You can't help but be touched by it. And you're asked to really choose sides. Are you, you know, with Zelensky or are you with Putin? And many of the Republicans have had a hard time choosing sides. Tucker Carlson way overplayed his hand by going in so early with Putin uh, and Trump and Pompeo and others did the same thing. And and Madison Cawthorn, who called Zelensky a thug and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who still is rooting for Russia. And so I think this is an opportunity where the American people uh, give Vladimir Putin a 1% approval rating and Zelensky is near 70%, the most recent poll, to really force them to decide, uh, you know, are you a Zelensky American uh, or a Putin uh, American? And and then use that at the ballot box to make sure the voters know the contrast uh, between the candidates. And, and that's how you hopefully beat uh, some of these people that you, know, you were just describing, uh, Miles, who are you know, lining up to run. Congressman, I know we're getting close to time here. I want to ask you, though, because if there's any authority in Congress on how we start to combat misinformation, uh, you've easily got to be in the top tier there. And I saw just this weekend that one of your counterparts there in Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, tweeted uh, that it's time to, quote, end the U.S. intelligence operations against America. Now, again, you've sat for years on the House Intelligence Committee. Here's an elected member of Congress fanning the flames of conspiracy theory that somehow our U.S. intelligence agencies are running operations against Americans. I mean, this is basically QAnon shit. I mean, this is is QAnon QAnon shit. shit. How do we even combat that when it's an elected politician that's feeding these conspiracy theories? I mean, a, a, a reader presumes that she's, you know, read into the operations of government and she's reporting from the inside that the intelligence agencies are undermining our country. This is pretty dangerous stuff. What do you even do about that? Um, We have to beat her, (laughs) Miles. Uh, You know, and so she's in a a pretty decent district. I I hope Republicans, you know, continue to run people hard at her. But I I do go back to the the last question where um, find the higher ground where you can truly contrast her views with where the rest of mainstream is. And I think she's so wildly out of touch on Russia that even in her conservative district, I would imagine so many people are Zelensky Georgians and, and, and just exploit that uh, until it's so obvious, until it reveals other flaws of hers, like on the misinformation realm. Now, policy-wise, I, I do believe um, we have to reform, you know, Section 230. There's, there's wide spread, you know, uh, agreement uh, among tech companies, among Republicans and Democrats. And I hope we 
uh, take that on. But just as far as just like real time misinformation, Twitter is a private company. Facebook's a private company. I don't believe uh, that they should allow, uh, and I'm a, you know, a citizen who can make this point and it's up to them, but I don't think they should allow Russia to have a platform. Uh, and I think they should de-platform Russia. You know, Russia continues to post misinformation about this uh, war. They posted a photo from the Iraq war uh, showing, uh, you know, what is occurring in Ukraine to, to blame it on the Ukrainians. And, and so um, I, I think we should take them off of Twitter and, and just give Ms. Taylor Greene uh, less misinformation to pick from because Russia seems to be her favorite uh, varietal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I want to close, Congressman, by uh, asking about the man behind the member of Congress pin, Eric Swalwell himself. You day to day have to go onto the House floor, confront the craziness. I mean, you see Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and these people almost every day down there voting. You have a, a, a daily, even hourly reminder of the fact that misinformation has basically been elected to public office and has a mouthpiece. So you've got to find ways, pressure releases uh, here in Washington, D.C. So tell us, what do you do to clear your head and get away from the craziness uh, that, uh, that's, that's infected our politics? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, three kids in diapers uh, helps, but I can't keep having, <laughs> can't keep having kids because the third one has just absolutely uh, broken us. Uh, I run uh, every day. I love country music and, and country music uh, concerts. And, uh, you know, that all seems to help. You know, I, I wrote a book uh, and, and I want to write more books, not just about, I wrote a book about impeachment uh, called Endgame, but I, I don't want to just write about impeachment. I, I'd like, I enjoyed writing, um, but you're right. You do need, um, you know, vow, pressure release valves. Otherwise uh, it's easy to get so consumed in this. But Miles, I'll, I'll just end with, I, I was very fortunate that, the earliest lesson I learned in life was my dad, who was a small town police chief, and he was battling small town corruption in this little town in Iowa. And he was asked to reverse some cases he brought against the mayor and the mayor's friends. And he was told in a very public way uh, in the early 80s that if he didn't do that, he'd be fired. And it was covered by the Des Moines Register and all the local papers in Iowa. And my dad didn't back down and he was willing to lose his job to say that this wasn't right. You're not above the law because you're in power and he was fired and we packed up our little family and moved out uh, West and eventually ended up in California. But that lesson has stuck with me my whole life, which is you have to be willing to lose your job uh, to do what's right. And, and that's the exact opposite of what I see of so many people in the Republican party, a great party, a party my parents are a part of, um, that they're just not willing to lose their job to do what's right. They will do anything to keep their job to enable what's wrong. And that's, that's what I think these elections uh, for the foreseeable future are about. Well, Congressman, one of our listeners, Joe Myers, said that uh, they read your book and loved it. I know a number of your supporters out there would also love to see you run for president again. I got the antibodies for that. <laughs> I, you know, I've got to ask the question, are we ever going to see an Eric Swalwell for president campaign? No, I've got the antibodies. I, I love, I love trying. I had a case to make at the time. Um, but, uh, no, I'm, 
as I said, three kids in diapers, a third kid is just, it's broken me. So, um, but I, I, it was a fun run. Well, well, Congressman, thank you for joining us today. And I also have to thank you uh, for speaking up on these issues. You, you've been very vocal again on threats to democracy, both abroad and here at home. And uh, we're very grateful. Great. And, and again, good luck with the podcast. I'm glad you're doing it. Congressman Eric Swalwell from California, thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Up, tune in later this week for more interesting guests. We'll talk to you soon.